Who is allowed access? That's an important question, but not one we think about very much. We all know the old list, no shirt, no shoes, no service, right? But sometimes it actually takes a little more than that. Did you know that according to an ordinance in Atlanta, Georgia, quote, smelly people are not allowed to ride public streetcars. That's true. I found it in multiple, uh, multiple references. The stinky among us aren't only in danger of missing the bus. In 2014, the city of Burien, Washington, passed an ordinance that said people could be excluded from parks or other public places, even city hall, for a variety of behaviors, including hostile language, not enough clothes covering the body, and smell. The law allows Burien police to bar the offender from the public space for up to a year. So take showers, everybody. Many of us here probably aren't deep students of the historic church councils. There were a whole bunch of them over the centuries. You've probably heard of the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Trent, some of these different, uh, you know, historic events. Some of them were more significant than others. I mean, the decisions at the Third Council of Constantinople don't really have a meaningful impact on our biblical faith today. But there is one council that makes a huge difference for us, for you and me. And it's the very first one in Jerusalem that we find in our passage tonight. In fact, our ability to do church the way that we do it is a result of what is decided in Acts 15. It was clear that Gentiles were allowed to join the church, but the question was, how were Gentiles to come in? What do we have to wear or how do we have to smell as Gentiles to join the church? As Gentiles do, we first have to convert to Judaism and then receive salvation in Jesus Christ. Is obedience to the Levitical law the ship, the vehicle that takes us into that new world? These are important questions. And we're able to take them for granted now, you know, in the 21st century, now that it's all been decided and we have the full revelation of Scripture and church history and all of that, but in these first decades of the church's history, this was a very fierce and very significant debate. As we see the Jerusalem Council in our text, we can notice a couple of important spiritual themes. One is that of God's providence, working itself out despite obstacles and opposition and all the odds stacked against grace. And another theme we might see is even though God will have his way, we as individuals still have a duty and a responsibility to go along and to submit to the Lord, to be a part of the providential work of God, his providential purposes instead of resisting God's work. This was the choice presented to Esther way back in the Old Testament. Mordecai assured her, God will accomplish his purposes, but would Esther cooperate and allow herself to be a part of God's work, or would she refuse to cooperate and therefore be set aside? And we're going to see examples of believers who chose one way and believers who choose another way in the verses tonight, and we'll see the potential outcomes of either choice. Now, as we begin, we find ourselves in Antioch of Syria great church there. Paul and Barnabas have been spending time in that healthy, growing congregation. And then we read verse 1 of chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. 
It's hard to be absolutely sure of the timeline here. As we've seen, Luke is only hitting certain highlights, even within stories that he's telling. He doesn't give us every single detail. How could he? But it seems that what we're reading here lines up with what Paul talks about in greater detail in Galatians chapter 2. Piecing it together, it seems that the apostle Peter had come to Antioch at some point. And he had been enjoying his time there among the mostly Gentile disciples. And from all that we've read, I mean, we would love to go to the church at Antioch. That was the place to be. That was a cool church doing great work, great teaching. They loved the Lord, full of fellowship, full of all these different good things. And so uh, Peter's hanging out. He's having a great time. And then these guys come from Jerusalem and they start teaching that Gentiles must first become practicing Jews if they want to be saved. Peter, we're told in Galatians 2.12, was afraid of their criticism, and so he pulled back from the Gentile Christians that he had just been fellowshipping with, and he wouldn't eat with them anymore. He'd say, yeah, sorry, you guys are smelly. I can't be around you right now. And therefore, he acted in implied agreement with these, what we call Judaizers. In the New Testament, uh, a Judaizer is a person who comes to the church and says, you have to become a practicing Jew first in order either to receive salvation in Jesus Christ or to maintain salvation in Jesus Christ. And so even though Peter probably wasn't teaching that, he was acting in implied agreement with them. And we're told in Galatians 2 that even Barnabas was also led astray by them for a time. Well, who were these guys? Luke doesn't name them specifically, but from the context and the comparison, it seems that they were associates of James, not the apostle James of the 12. He's been beheaded. He's gone. This is the Lord's half-brother, the one who would later write the epistle of James that we read in the New Testament. And he had become a primary leader in the church at Jerusalem. Now, these guys must have claimed to be official representatives from him or from the church in Jerusalem because later in verse 24 of this chapter, the elders of the church feel it's necessary to say, hey, we did not send or authorize these guys. And so if these were just random guys from Judea, I don't think there would have been that big a fuss over what they were doing, over their pocket teaching. Let's take a look at what they said. They weren't saying, hey, listen, This would be a best practice. If you want to be extra spiritual, do this. No, they said you can't be saved unless you become a Jew first, unless you are circumcised. They were adding prerequisites and requirements to the gospel. Now, this passage and many, many other in the New Testament make it absolutely clear that that is always a no-no, always a no-no. But you know, it still happens today. Happens in lots of different ways. Not just from cults or other world religions. It happens within the church itself. Within the Christian church, right? We know there are traditions that say you cannot be saved unless you are water baptized. There are those who say you, to be a Christian, you must speak in tongues. Uh, There are those who say you must keep the Sabbath, right? These debates continue somehow despite the clear teaching of Scripture. But the New Testament anticipated that. Even though the New Testament is very clear on how a person is saved by grace through faith, not of works, it anticipated, the Holy Spirit anticipated that these would be areas that the church would struggle with. And here's how we know that. Because we are warned so often in the New Testament about false teachers and false teachings creeping into the church to add to the gospel. Jesus warned us. Paul warned us. 
Peter warned us, John warned us, Jude warned us, the writer to the Hebrews warned us. All of those guys in their writings or in their teaching said, by the way, watch out for false teachers coming in who want to change, adjust, pervert the gospel in some way. And so there are false teachings that try to work their way into the church at large, and we need to be able to spot them and throw them overboard. They have no place in proper fellowship with the Lord. How do we spot them? Well, first, we have to be well-versed in the teachings of the Bible, and we need to be, uh, be trained and dedicated to the whole counsel of God, right? We don't want to be the kinds of Christians who never crack open the Old Testament, who have never looked into the book of Isaiah or Lamentations or some of these other things. You know, it's okay to have favorite books or favorite passages or favorite verses, or favorite characters. That's absolutely understandable and normal and fine. But we want to be people who are looking through the whole word of God. The whole word of God is what God says we need for life and godliness. He doesn't say what you actually need is just John 3 and you just need this and you just need that and kind of get rid of the rest. He said, this is what you need for a balanced spiritual diet. And even more than that, he said, like, this is what you need page after page in order to survive uh, in the spiritual world, right? For life and for godliness. And so, first of all, we want to be well-versed in the teachings of scripture that are once and for all delivered. And we can spot false teachings or false teachers when we see people playing fast and loose with the details of theology. For example, I see this a little bit here. These guys in verse one boil down their argument saying this, circumcision was prescribed by Moses. Well, listen, actually circumcision predated Moses by hundreds and hundreds of years, right? It was given to Abraham. Now they wanna use circumcision as the back door to get into, and not just circumcision, the whole law, right? The next time they talk in this passage, it's not just circumcision, now it's the whole law. And this is what legalism does. It spreads like a weed throughout a congregation or throughout you know, a doctrinal setting. And, but we see they're kind of playing a little bit fast and loose, right? If they really wanted to appeal to the importance of circumcision, you need to start at Abraham. That's where circumcision was instituted. And we notice that if you, if you look at legalistic teachings within the church, they're always fast and loose with details and with specifics and with the way things are commanded of you. Uh, we'll get a little bit more into that in a moment. But second, we're given a description of false teachers in 2 Timothy, a very plain one. And Paul says here, False teachers will hold to the form of godliness, but deny its power. And that's what exact, exactly what these Judaizers were doing. They were there in Antioch and denying the testimony of what God had been doing in Antioch, in Cyprus, in Galatia. They were with these people and they said, no, no, all of that's canceled out. No, no, you're not a Christian. Oh, you were a pagan and now you're not a pagan? No, I don't care about that because you're not holding to the form that I say you need to hold to. Yeah, your life's been changed. Yeah, all of these things have been happening, miracles and signs and wonders, none of that. I'm canceling all of that out. I'm gonna go ahead and deny that that is the real power of God because after all, you're not following my list that I have made, not just for myself, I've made it for you. You have to follow the form that I say you have to follow. Verse two says, after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem about this issue. So Paul must have brought Barnabas back over to the grace side after his slip into legalism in Galatians two. 
and they stand together in this fight. And you know what? Paul the Apostle is willing to die on this hill. And this would be a battle Paul would have to fight again and again and again, but it was worth it. Uh, Paul was not going to give an inch on the issue of salvation by grace through faith and liberty, and his epistles talk a lot about those issues. I do commend the church at Antioch for this, though. They were willing to submit if necessary. Why else would they send this delegation? What are they saying there? You know, these Judaizers sure had street cred. They were kind of there under false pretenses, it seems. And they probably made some really strong arguments. And the Gentiles in Antioch were humble enough to say, well, let's get this decided. And if we need to become Jews, I guess we'll become Jews. If they weren't willing to entertain that, they wouldn't have said a delegation. They would have said, you guys get, go back down to Judea where you guys do whatever you're doing and we're going to do here. But great humility and submission and just willingness to submit to the Lord if this is really what the Lord wanted. Now, what arguments could these guys have made that would have had any convincing effect? I mean, we scoff at the teachings of Judaizers thanks to the ministry of Paul and the revelation of Scripture. So what were these guys maybe saying that was so convincing or so hard to parse through? Well, Dr. H.A. Ironside points out that a variety of passages like Isaiah 60 and Zechariah 8 indicate that the Gentile nations would come to God through Israel right? And you're probably familiar with some of those passages. And so wouldn't that mean they have to come through not only the Messiah of Israel, but wouldn't they have to come through the system that God gave Israel, circumcision and all the rest? And so these guys came from Jerusalem and probably made some pretty, pretty significant arguments. And they probably were pointing to the Bible themselves and saying, you have to do this. And that's what legalists always do. They, they'll find a passage that will say what they want you to do. Verse 3, when they had been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers and sisters. A telltale difference between legalism and grace is seen right here. Legalism brings burdens. Grace brings joy. In a few verses... Peter is going to say to these legalists, you are weighing people down. When these guys showed up in Antioch and said, guess what, Gentiles, we know you've had your whole life change. We know that you went from darkness to light in your own mind. You're completely different people. You don't want to worship idols anymore. You don't want to do all this weird sin anymore. But guess what? You need to be circumcised and you need to follow the law of Moses. Nobody's overjoyed by that. Nobody's excited at that news. Nobody's thinking, praise God, I get to be circumcised now. No one's thinking that. And now look at what Paul and Barnabas are doing as they go through telling the truth of God and the grace of the gospel. It's bringing joy to people. People that aren't even, these are people that are already saved and are like, man, I'm just full of joy to hear what God is doing out there in the wider Gentile world. And so a simple point of application here is this. As you travel the roads of your life, whether it's the 198 or the information superhighway, bring joy, right? Not anger, not bitterness, not resentment, not burdens. Bring joy. We can do it and we're supposed to do it. Now, it seems likely that all of these guys would have traveled together. If so, I think that would have been an interesting road trip. 
You have this whole, I mean, because they were going to have a council. It was a delegation. There was obviously all of this contention and stuff. And so it wouldn't have made sense for them to say, well, we'll leave now. You leave a week from now. I think they're all going to travel together. And uh, yeah, I, it, if you, I don't know if I, you want to have, I don't know if you want to be on this trip. <laughs> Verse four, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. As a church, we want to be welcomers. Even if there's friction that needs to be resolved, even if there's, you know, in, in the context here, a, a, a gorilla in the room, an elephant in the room, right? We can still extend care and compassion, even to people we disagree with on some issue. We should be the warmest, most welcoming, grace-filled, joyful people in town. That's not always easy, but it's always part of God's call in our lives to be a people who welcome others. Verse five, but some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So it wasn't just one or two guys that we see in verse one or however many there were who felt this way about the issue. There was a whole party of Christians within the church at Jerusalem who felt the same. And it seems they had maybe been biding their time as they heard these stories about the Gentile conversions trickle in, as they heard that there's this stuff going on with this church up in Antioch, as they hear about Paul, I, you know, word travels fast. And as they hear these things, they've been biding their time. And then now they are ready to launch their attack on salvation by grace through faith. And what a sad thing that having heard all that God had done, these people saw no reason to celebrate, no reason to thank the Lord, no reason to worship, no reason to be excited, no reason to say, I want to be a part of that. When's the next trip you're going on? None of that. I mean, that's, that's some hard-heartedness that they said, you're done talking about what, what God's been doing. Okay, I'm going to attack salvation by grace through faith now. That's a sad thing. No, their party politics had demanded that they exclude all of that and all of those people until they conformed their lives to their pharisaical model. And that's a really sad thing. Now, we got to be careful we don't become like this, not in regard to following the law of Moses. I doubt very much there's any danger of that for most of us. But think about it this way. If we heard from a reliable source that our governor had converted to Christianity and was born again like the governor of Cyprus had been, I hope we would celebrate. I hope we would honor God. I hope our first response wouldn't be, no, he didn't. Or wouldn't be, okay, now demand that he does what we want him to do and that he form himself in a way that makes me feel good. I hope we would celebrate and that we would stand in awe of God and worship him and thank him for his goodness. Notice how these guys in this verse were demanding that the apostles command the Gentiles not to just be circumcised, but to keep all the law. Go out and enforce that. Command them to do it. I was thinking about this. This is what legalism does. It excludes, it demands, it commands but you know what? So far in the book of Acts, the church really hasn't been in the command business, have they? We think of church government, or maybe we think of the Pope and he's issuing statements and that now you have to do this. Have we seen the church doing any of this? We're 20 years at least into the life of the church here, but think about all of these passages before. 
What do the leaders of the church do when, there's, uh, when the Lord speaks to them or when the Lord directs them or when there's an issue that they need solving? They, do they start issuing edicts? You do this. Hey, you right there, you better do this and I'm gonna enforce it. They don't do any of that. They're not in the command business. That's weird, super weird. Uh, and, and they're in the conversion business. They're in the communion business. They're in the community business. They haven't been issuing laws and regulations. Let's put this in plain practical speech, updated for today. We'll never do this. But if you ever find yourself going to a church that demands you sign some agreement in order to be a member in good standing, that's Pharisee behavior. That's not grace. Do we see Peter doing any of that? Now sign this paper that says, you'll do what I want you to do. And if you don't, you're not one of us. What? Now we all get kind of convinced in a modern culture. Yeah, yeah, that's normal. That's normal. Let's sign off on that. That's weird. You know, when the church had problems in, even in Jerusalem, right? Even in Jerusalem, they said, we have this huge problem. These widows are being mistreated. What did the leaders of the church say? They said, you're Christians full of the Holy Spirit. Go solve that issue. Goodbye. No one was commanded, and here's what you better do, and this much to this person, and this much to that person, and if you don't do it, we're gonna start getting crazy. Nobody was doing anything like that, but this is what legalism does. Now, here we can see some of the fantastic providence of God. At the moment, this all breaks out, threatening the future of the church. Who is there in the audience but the Pharisee of Pharisees? The Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. And the apostle Peter, who God had specifically used to break down the wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. God made sure that those guys were in attendance when all of a sudden there was this attack, whether it was, uh, whether it was instigated by Satan or whether it was just these guys thinking, hey, this is how we have to apply you know, this section of God's word to all of these other people. The Lord had made a way so that the Pharisee of Pharisees and the apostle that opened the door of faith to the Gentiles were there to be a part of it. Verse six says, the apostles and the elders gathered to consider this matter. Now take note of this. These are all Jews. We're in Jerusalem. These are all Jews making a decision here. In the modern way of doing things, this is not okay, right? There's not fair representation. There's no equality there. In California, they passed a law back when that corporate boards have to have, you know, you have to have a certain number of females and a certain number of males, right? That's the modern way of thinking. And hey, whatever, whatever the secular world is gonna do, okay, we're not here to debate that. But what do we find here within the church, within the spiritual realm? We find that if people are obedient to the Lord and are full of the spirit, then God breaks down all of those obstacles, overcomes our deficiencies, overcomes things like prejudice and is able to do the impossible. If we were bringing a case before you know, a court saying, hey, you're trying to force us to be Jews. We are not sure about that. Who's gonna decide the case? all Jews. We would say that's not a jury of our peers. We want 50% Gentiles and 50% Jews. That's fair. But you see, there's not, even a, there's not even a blip of that. There's no complaint because why? Because these men were full of the Holy Spirit and they were submitted to God because they were willing to be servants of Christ before they were Jews or before they were Gentiles or before they were this or before they were that. 
And so we see just uh, the power of God working through lives. Verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you are aware that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the gospel message and believe. Much debate. They really struggled with this. Again, I mean, we take it for granted. Uh, because it's all settled and done with. It's all explained and fleshed out in the New Testament. But this was a tough, tough meeting. Peter stands with great courage and reminds them of what God had done in regard to Cornelius and all the Gentiles that Cornelius represented. And we remember what Paul said in Galatians 2 that Peter was afraid of criticism from this party. And so we commend him. He's standing in courage. He's doing something that might have cost him a lot in his personal relationships, in his standing in the church. But he said, you know what? I'm going to do what's right. Obviously, he had a soft spot for the Jewish rites and rituals, right? When those guys showed up, he said, mm, I, better, I better not let them know that I'm not kosher all the way. And so he's being, he's being brave here. He's being courageous, thankful for that. And again, we see providence in action, I think. Had it only been Paul standing for grace, I think there's a good chance he would have been delegitimized in these proceedings. The guys in Jerusalem, they weren't real excited about Paul. I don't know if you've caught that vibe yet from the book of Acts, but from, as we read it, I don't think they were divided or anything, but they weren't rushing to bring Paul to Jerusalem. A lot of times they were saying, hey, could you leave, please? It would be great if you left. And Paul seemed to sort of agree. And so it had only been Paul showing up and saying, excuse me, I'm here to stand for grace through faith. It would have been all too humanly easy to say, you, the, the killer of Christians, you who stood against the church, you who are doing whatever you're doing without really being a part of us, and yet God provided so that there were guys in Jerusalem like Peter who was willing to do his duty toward grace. Peter points out that it is God's express purpose from the early days that Gentiles be saved. It was an act of adoption, not an act of immigration, if that makes sense. It wasn't that Gentiles showed up and said, we want to get saved too. And then God had to say, okay, well, how are we going to do this? okay, you need to take this test and you need to do these things and you have to go through this paperwork. And once you do all of that, we'll make you a citizen of the new heaven and new earth. No, this is an act of adoption where God went out into the world and he says, I wanna save, I wanna save, I wanna rescue, I wanna pull you out of the miry clay and not just save your life, but make you my son, right? I don't know if you've ever been to a, an adoption proceeding. We had the privilege and the opportunity to be um, at the proceeding where um, the two boys that my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were, foster were fostering were going to be adopted. And the boys did not have to do anything. The boys did not have to perform anything. It wasn't even up to them in that sense. They, they went through this and it was the parents who said, yeah, we want to bring you into the family. Let's, what do we need to do as parents to legally make this happen? And that's what God was doing for the Gentiles, and Peter is pointing that out. Verse 8 says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Salvation is a heart issue. 
It's not about merit. It's not about behavior. It's not about effort. It is accomplished in the heart. Now, it's obvious that once a person has surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, then they are responsible to obey him as king, the many things that their king has commanded. For sure, obviously, Jesus, the king, has commanded many things. But what we're talking about here is salvation. How can a person be saved from the penalty of their sins? And that is done at the heart level, by grace, through faith, plus nothing. If circumcision or anything else was necessary, God had no problem directing his people in the time of the Acts. Think about it. Think about all of the ways, the detailed ways that God revealed his truth and his desires and his directions. He's sending angels. He's sending visions. He's speaking to the church. The Holy Spirit's doing all kinds of stuff. You go here. You go there. I'm separating out these two people. Here's Matthias. All of these things. God had no problem explaining himself to the 12 or to the church during this time. And, and so it's obvious that he could have told them, by the way, I forgot to mention, they're going to have to become Jews first. Faith is the way, faith plus nothing. Verse 10, now then, why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are. Notice that Peter calls them disciples. I love that. He doesn't call them Gentiles. He calls them disciples. I think that's great. And notice how he puts them first, them primary in verse 11 in a wonderfully unexpected reversal. He says, we, the Jews, we're saved the same way they are. He puts them primary and puts, them, uh, puts the Jews as secondary. That's a heart of grace. That is a heart of love and compassion. Peter, Peter also gives these Judaizers a humbling talking to. He's a better student of their history than they are themselves. He says, your ancestors couldn't do this. You can't do this. I can't do this. And that's the crux of the matter. Not only has God revealed that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, but it's also been proven again and again that no one can live up to the law. No one. No, not the law of Moses, not the Beatitudes. No one can do it because they are perfect standards. Any legalism that people try to put on you is impossible. If they say you have to be, you have to keep the Sabbath to be a Christian, that's impossible. It can't be done. That's why we're told in Proverbs 30 and in Titus 3 that self-righteousness is of no benefit. It's very plain. We cannot wash ourselves. That's the point. Only one person could fulfill the law, and that was Jesus Christ. After all the millennia of human history, finally, there was someone who could satisfy the requirements of the law. And Paul would later explain in Romans 8 that he did it for us because we cannot do it for ourselves. And Peter points this out, not just as a difference of style. It's not just a difference of opinion. He says, no, legalism is putting an impossible, cruel burden on people that should not be there. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Another way to spot a legalist, a legalist goes to other Christians and complains that they're not doing it right. A servant of God goes into the world and is used to rescue people who are lost. 
You look at Paul and Barnabas and you see God actually did something with their lives, right? What did the legalists do? They went to a healthy, vibrant, thriving church and started hacking away at the people inside of it. That's how you spot a false teacher. That's how you spot a legalist. Verse 13, after they stopped speaking, James responded, brothers, listen to me. Simon has reported how God first intervened to take the Gentiles as a people for his name. And the words of the prophets agree with this. As it is written, after these things, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. I will rebuild its ruins and set it up again so that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, declares the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. James shows great submission to Jesus here because James was deeply Jewish. He was super Jewish. He was a strict law follower. And yet he bowed to his Lord in this instance and said, Lord, in a sense, it doesn't make sense for me to cast the net on the other side of the boat here and go with grace and bypass the law for the Gentiles, but at your word, I will. And I think that's great. And James acknowledges that this principle of grace wasn't Paul's idea. It wasn't a Gentile idea. It was God's idea. And it was altogether biblical. He references Amos chapter nine here, which not only harmonizes with uh, the words, uh, the work in the first century, but it is a further fulfillment, even future to us. A whole sub theme we don't have time for tonight is God's plan for the end times brought out in this chapter. But here we see God's providence rolling along. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be confounded. Our part is to join in and not stand on the wrong side of his will, even if it might cost us personally or challenge our deeply held traditions. I think we can try to think the best of some of the Jewish believers, the ones who were pro-law. Let's try to think the best of them. Perhaps they really thought they were being biblical. But what we're seeing here is that they were being selective in their approach to the scriptures. Maybe they were pointing at Isaiah 60 or pointing to Zechariah, these certain passages. But by holding the position they held, they had to cancel out whole sections of prophecy, whole teachings of Jesus. They had to kind of just shuffle those aside and say, no, but these. And this is what legalists do all the time. Having read Amos 9 and other passages like it, it should have come as no surprise to them that the door of salvation was flung wide to non-Jews, not through the law, but through grace. We need to pay attention to Bible prophecy. They should have been paying attention, these legalists, to Amos, right? And to Bible prophecy that talked about the coming in of Gentiles. We need to pay paying attention to Bible prophecy. I think we try hard to do that here at Calvary. But here's a more modern example of how the church makes a mistake in this regard sometimes. No one should have been, no one in the church, in the evangelical Christian church, should have been surprised by the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. Before 1948, there were some, a few people who said, hey, this is going to happen. And a lot of people in the church said, no, of course not. Of course, we look back now and we're like, well, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious that the prophecies of the Bible say this very clearly, that this is going to happen? But it was a big surprise to many in the church, including many theologians. It shouldn't have been. And so we see that this wasn't just a first century Pharisee problem. It's one we, we have to keep being careful about too. Paying attention, the whole counsel of God, looking at prophecy, seeking the Lord, relying on grace. Verse 19, therefore, in my judgment, James said, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles who turn to God. 
If a tradition or a teaching makes it difficult for a person to step through the door of salvation, then it isn't from Jesus. If a teaching demands a person dresses a certain way, acts a certain way, pays some price to be saved, it isn't the gospel, plain and simple. You know, it's been reported that uh, in the Scientologist religion, if you are, want to be saved according to their system, it's going to cost you hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. It just costs that much all the time to do that. That's not good news. That's not good news. Certainly not Christianity. But listen, if you say you have to keep the Sabbath to be saved, it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. It maybe is dressed up a little bit differently, but it is putting a burden, it is putting an impossible price on the back of someone who cannot live up to it. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't cost anything to follow Jesus and be a Christian. Of course, we know that Christians are definitely commanded to lay down our lives, to take up a cross, to count all as lost for our Lord. But the thief on the cross had no price to pay. It was being paid for him as they spoke to each other, right? All that was necessary for him to be saved from hell for heaven was to believe. And because of God's grace, he was rescued from the guilt of his sin. End of, the, end of the deal. Verse 20. Instead, we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from eating anything that has been strangled, and from blood. If you were a pagan Gentile in that era, you were soaked in idolatry and sexual immorality and all kinds of weirdness. You didn't know those things were bad. It's like when you hear the testimony of cannibalistic tribes that are exposed to the gospel and they didn't know they weren't supposed to eat each other. Right? I mean, you hear these testimonies from these people that finally hear the message of Jesus Christ and they say, oh, we're not supposed to eat other people. And, and in, in a similar fashion, the, the pagans of the Gentile world in this time didn't know that sexual immorality was a bad thing. In fact, they had been told through their whole culture and their whole life that it was a good thing. Go to the temple and do this and do this and do this and do this. Gentiles needed to be told that some of these things were wrong. But wait a minute. Didn't we just establish that there was no ritual law to follow? And won't Paul write a whole bunch of stuff about why a person has liberty when it comes to meat sacrifice to idols? Yes, he's, yes, he will. So what is going on here? What's the deal? Well, let's let James finish. Verse 21. For since ancient times, Moses has had those who proclaim him in every city. And every Sabbath day, he is read aloud in the synagogues. You see, all these Gentile Christians would be rubbing elbows with Jews and Jewish believers. It would be impossible for them to have communion together if they continued with some of these eating habits. Now listen, the sexual immorality thing, that's not a Levitical deal. That's God's forever standard in every age. But what James is doing here is providing a practical guideline to help Gentiles not offend Jews or Jewish Christians in such a way where they couldn't have anything to do with one another. We live in a time and a culture where there aren't divides quite like this. But for folks in Acts 15, this was a deal breaker. And the Jerusalem council was not only answering a theological question, they also needed to solve a very real relational divide within the church at the time. And so as Warren Wearsby points out, proper doctrine leads to duty, duty to God, duty to one another. There is no meat sacrificed to idols in Hanford, right? I mean, maybe you could make some sort of allegory, but there is no pagan temple where they sacrifice meat and then we go and buy it at a deal and offend the Jews who we don't know live in Hanford, right? 
And so some of this is about the relational strain and problem that they were dealing with. Now, we are wonderfully benefited by what happened at the Jerusalem Council. Now, God was set on accomplishing his work of grace, and he, through providence, was sure to get it done. But in these scenes, what do we see? We see that there was a Paul and there were Pharisees. There was a Peter who spoke up and the rest of the 12 who perhaps didn't speak up. We want to orient our lives toward the truth, not only so that we are right in an argument, but so that we can be used to actually further the providential work of grace in the church and in our world. Because as we see here, it makes a big difference. Grace makes a big, big difference. And God's work is a work of grace and truth, one that does not exclude, but welcomes in all who will believe and then transforms their lives, washing the paganism from their hearts, replacing it with his purposes, his humility, and his joy. Amen?